Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Bruna. And I'm Nadia. And on this month's episode, we're talking about medical tattooing. It's great to be on the podcast with you, Nadia. I know, it's our first time together, mixing things up. I know, right? And the first of many, I hope. Definitely. So we have a really interesting episode lined up. We're talking about medical tattooing, which is a totally new topic for me. So I'm really excited to learn more about what medical tattooing is and what purpose it serves. It's also referred to as permanent makeup. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I won't go into too much detail about that now, as our guests will do a much better job of describing it than I ever could. But essentially, medical tattooing is a practice in which pigment is implanted into the skin. Right, and it can be used to camouflage a range of visible differences, like scars, vitiligo or hair loss. Yeah, that's it. And to tell us about this practice, as well as share some insights from recent research on the topic, we're joined by three lovely guests today. So Bruna will introduce everyone in detail shortly, but in brief, Bruna speaks to Nicola, who offers a research perspective, Amy, who offers a lived experience perspective, and Ray, who offers a practitioner perspective. Thanks, Nadia. I really can't wait for you all to listen to the conversation I had with these guests today. It was really, really interesting. Excellent. Well, let's not waste any more time and get right into it. We have a few guests on the podcast today. First, we have Nicola Stock, who's a senior research fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research. You may remember Nicola from our cleft lip and or palate episode a couple of months ago. Nicola's work to date has centred on craniofacial conditions like cleft, craniosynostosis and craniofacial microsomia. We also have Amy Johnson, who's operations manager from the charity Alopecia UK. Alopecia UK is a national leading charity supporting people affected by alopecia. As well as her professional involvement with the charity, Amy also has lived experience of alopecia and has personal experience of having had medical tattooing also. Lastly, we have Ray Denman, a medical tattooist. In her work, Ray has tattooed people with various visible differences such as scarring, birthmarks, vitiligo and alopecia. So thank you so much all for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks for having me back, Bruna. Of course. Great to have you all. Uh, So as I said, the focus of today's episode is on the issue of medical tattooing. Ray, as a medical tattooist, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us a bit more about the practice and about what it is. Okay, sure. Medical tattooing, it's the process of implanting pigment into the skin to reduce the visibility of a type of visible difference, one that's causing concern and having a negative impact on someone's life. So we're able to treat scarring, skin graft, hypopigmentation, port wine stains. These are all areas where they're visible because they tend to be much lighter than the surrounding skin. Or in the case of a port wine stain, it's pink, red or dark purple in colour. So you can add a mix of coloured pigment to match the skin tones. You never really get rid of the scar or the graft, but you can reduce the visibility of it. You can also rebuild features that have been lost through trauma, disease or genetics, such as eyebrows, lips and the nipple areola. So in the case of this research, we concentrated on the condition alopecia. 
if somebody's eyebrows or eyelashes are no longer there, you can tattoo their eyebrows back on or give them eye definition. Other features that tend to be tattooed are somebody with a cleft lip. They generally have had surgery when they were younger and they won't have a cupid's bow or symmetry in their upper lip. So this can be recreated with particular placement of lip coloured pigments. You can also tattoo nipple areola. This is offered for patients having undergone mastectomy and breast reconstruction. You can recreate the areola either to match the existing areola or if they've had a bilateral mastectomy, you can recreate both areola to the size and the colour that the patient wants. And that's now available on the NHS and it can be offered within a hospital setting. Other forms of medical tattooing tend to be offered within private hospitals, private clinics or salons. So it is a medical service and it does differ from normal body tattooing because we use pigment rather than ink. So ink's too large a molecule to move anywhere. So it stays where it's put in the dermal layer of the skin. Whereas pigment, which medical tattooists use, is a much smaller molecule and it can be removed by the body's lymph system. This means it fades over time and it lasts approximately one to four years. So you're never going to remove the visible difference with medical tattooing, but you do conceal the discoloration in order to make it less noticeable either to the patient themselves or to others when you're out and about. And often to have the choice of covering it up can take the pressure off. So for some people, that choice gives them back their freedom and their confidence. That's really interesting stuff, Ray. Thank you. You had mentioned that sometimes medical tattooing is covered by the NHS. Can you expand a bit more on that and tell us when it is and when it isn't covered? So it's only covered for nipple areola tattooing and when somebody's had a a mastectomy and breast reconstruction. So they will offer you that in the hospital. Quite often now the nurses are trained in medical tattooing. So they will. So you won't get a medical tattooist come into the NHS anymore, which is a shame. Um, but the nurses are trained and they will offer it. They will offer a couple of sessions. Um, and then whether they offer the actual colour boost over the years, I'm not sure. But they get that process started. Any other medical tattooing at the moment isn't offered on the NHS, although I know when I worked in Wales, they were looking to get some scarring covered. Um, But I think because of the way that the NHS is at the moment, that process might be a long process coming in. So scarring, grafts, alopecia, vitiligo, hypopigmentation, none of these things at the moment are covered by the NHS. Really great stuff. Thank you so much for sharing all that knowledge. And Amy, you have actually had medical tattooing yourself in the past. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about it from your perspective. Yeah, so um, I lost my hair 11 years ago. Um, I was diagnosed with alopecia areata, uh, which meant that my hair started falling out in patches um, in the February of 2010. And by the July of the same year, I basically lost a lot. It it all fallen out. Um, And I kind of coped okay with that if you can imagine you know obviously that's a big shock to come to terms with at the age of 27 suddenly kind of facing a bit of a a life with hair loss that I I wasn't expecting but the bit that I struggled with the most um, I remember quite vividly being like almost the lowest point for me was when my eyelashes and my eyebrows um, disappeared and for me um, the, the loss of hair from my scalp was something that Yes, obviously that had a, an impact on my, um, my my visible appearance, 
but I still felt like me as soon as those you know those two lines on your face as I call my eyebrows you know it, it was amazing the difference that made to my face and the fact that I would look in the mirror and I wouldn't recognize the person staring back um so when I lost my hair I didn't know anything about medical tattooing or the various names it goes by, permanent makeup, semi-permanent makeup, microblading, all these various terms. Um, it wasn't something that was mentioned to me by any doctors. Um, at the time of me losing my hair, it took me a while to be in touch with others with alopecia. So again, knew nothing about the the area of um, kind of, you know, medical tattooing and things that might help me with with things like makeup. Um, believe it or not, I'm a total makeup novice. I'm rubbish with makeup. So for me, when I lost my lashes and brows, um, I didn't feel I personally was equipped with the skills for me to have a go. So for me to replace them with, you know, there's obviously lots of makeup options out there. There's, you know, eyebrow pencils and, and various things that I could have had a go with. But I felt absolutely lost and didn't have a clue. And it wasn't until about uh, I think it was around 12 months after I lost everything. So I was felt like that kind of um, that, well, like a blank canvas, basically. My face, as I felt a bit lost. I felt a bit lost. Um, a friend mentioned to me that her it was actually her nan who um, had been having um, medical tattooing and had her brows replaced, told me how wonderful these treatments were. And I started digging around and found out a bit more, found out about um, a company um, not so far from where I was, went for an initial consultation um, and went for it. I took the plunge um, and it was scary because essentially, you know, there's things like permanent makeup and tattooing um, being kind of, you know, those that kind of language being used. Um, and I was terrified I was going to make a terrible mistake and that somebody was going to put these lines on my face again to replace what I would had lost. And that I would hate them. Um, and I'm going to be honest and say, after 12 months of having nothing on my face, when I had my brows done, initially, I was thinking I've made a terrible mistake <laughs> because they felt alien to me. They felt like, what are these? You know, what, what's happened? But a few days later, they'd almost had settled back into my face. And it, looking back, it was the best thing I did for me. It gave me my confidence back. I felt a bit more like myself again. Um, and it was, well, I put it down to being one of the steps in my journey of coming to terms with my alopecia, both the medical tattooing that I had and meeting other people. Both those things gave me my confidence back. So for me, I can absolutely see that the benefits uh, for some people. And I always want to caveat all my conversations around medical tattooing with it isn't for everyone. Not everyone feels the need to have it done. And there's lots of people with alopecia that look fantastic and have the confidence without medical tattooing but for some of us we need that bit that gives us our confidence back and for me gave me my face back which sounds dramatic but that's very much how I feel about medical tattooing for me. It's so lovely to hear a patient journey um, and that really picked up a couple of points for me. One was um, how Amy felt when she lost her brows and her lashes and I'm, I have that with a lot because I see a lot of patients that have had chemotherapy and they've lost their hair and their brows and their lashes from that. Um, and they say exactly the same thing. And it actually kind of is quite overwhelming emotionally when people explain that because um, one of my recent patients had said about losing her brows and her lashes 
when she had chemotherapy was that before that, people didn't know she was ill. So only the people she knew um, well and wanted to know that she was undergoing chemotherapy knew about it. Whereas when she lost her brows and her lashes, suddenly it was like everybody knew because there was such a difference to her face. So I think there are a lot of people that feel that and it, and it becomes a, a not just a confidence um, issue, but a, a psychological impact that it has on you that you have to really change um, who you are and how you see yourself. So I think it's really lovely of Amy to share that and it, and it is um, replicated in a lot of people that I see. And the second thing that I think is really important to put out there about medical tattooing, which Amy mentioned as well, is how it's not for everybody. And it's not that you have to do this. It's just that it's there if somebody feels that they that it is having a negative impact in their life. So some people wear their scars and their grafts, you know, with pride and they're happy about it and they're confident about it. They don't mind the questions. And then other people just feel like it's a daily thing where it's a barrage of people asking them about it and they just don't want what don't want to have to explain it to everybody all the time. So I think that's a really important point as well. It's not for everybody, but it is there for people that need it or want it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you both. And thank you, Amy, for sharing that perspective. It's really, really interesting to hear. Um, I also know that Nicola and Ray, uh, you have both been involved recently with a research project which aimed to explore the experiences of medical tattooing among women with appearance-altering conditions, uh, particularly alopecia, I believe. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the study, particularly how it came about and why you felt it was needed. Sure. So we know from much of our research at CAR and all of our collaborations, um, and also from the um, story that Amy beautifully described, that having an appearance altering condition such as alopecia and its ongoing treatment can have a significant impact on people's lives and on their emotional health. And we also know that despite the wide range of medical treatments that are available, um, the success rate of these treatments can vary quite a lot and the side effects can be quite unpleasant and even dangerous in some cases. And so as a result, alternative treatments like medical tattooing um, are becoming more popular and do seem like they could be you know, a positive alternative to something that's a bit more invasive. Um, however, perhaps with the exception of breast reconstruction, which, as Ray mentioned, is now covered by the National Health Service and it's delivered by trained nurses. What we also know is that medical tattooing tends to be quite a largely unregulated industry. And we don't really yet have a good understanding of the benefits and the risks that might be involved or how to actually achieve the best outcome for the individual. Um, Ray had actually, by complete coincidence, gotten in touch with Carr to inquire about whether we were carrying out this type of research at the same time as I was kind of digging around and finding out about medical tattooing. And so Ray and I had um, a couple of really lovely phone calls to um, discuss kind of these issues. And we decided that we really wanted to find out what motivated um, people to choose medical tattooing and how we could learn from their experiences to support others. Um, so at Alopecia UK, um, we've obviously been in touch with people for a number of years um, regarding medical tattooing. It's something that crops up quite a bit in terms of people wanting more information and asking questions. 
and similar to myself um you know having that kind of that nervousness about going forward with something that essentially will sit on your face for quite some time so a lot of the the kind of questions that that come from it and a lot of the challenges that we have as an organization giving out advice is around the fact that the you know medical tattooing is something that varies considerably between or can vary considerably between practitioners and technicians um, and so in terms of being able to kind of like signpost people where to go and even things like, you know, how much it should cost and, and various things, it's really difficult for us as, a, as an organisation when it does vary quite considerably between um, places to go. So on our website, we try and have kind of, you know, some kind of you know standard advice and tips um, and, and things to be kind of mindful of when going into um, having uh, medical tattooing. But I think this research was really welcome because what it was doing is it was looking at medical tattooing from a research point of view and actually addressing, well, why is it so important to people? And I think often the biggest challenge that that we have as an organisation is getting, um, I think, often the medical side of things to recognise that things like this aren't just cosmetic. And cosmetic is often something and it's a, it's a word that's banded around. And I think um, when it's kind of put into the more the cosmetic side of things and it being more around you know sometimes vanity I think rather than a medical need I think that's where um, often people themselves with you know particularly with alopecia struggle because they feel vain for wanting to have this treatment done when actually it's a treatment that can as I say absolutely change somebody's life in terms of you know I mentioned around my confidence and feeling like myself again that's not a vanity thing. That's not a cosmetic thing. That's not for me. That was very much, um, you know, a, a medical treatment. And I believe it should be kind of seen as such. So that's why for me, it was very exciting to see this research, looking at that, looking at the motivations behind why people have it, the impact it has in their lives. And hopefully we can do more with that to kind of emphasize the very much, you know, the, the importance of treatments like this, not just for people with alopecia, but for people with all visible differences. Thanks, Amy. And actually, what's really interesting is that when we initially advertised the study, Ray and I were looking for both men and women with a wide range of appearance altering conditions, many of which Ray mentioned in her introduction. Um, but it was the fact that we had such an overwhelming response from women who had experienced hair loss, predominantly alopecia, that we decided to focus our study on this from that point on. And that's really how Alopecia UK really became involved. Yeah, we have a really engaged community who are very good at getting involved in in research when it takes place. So um, I think we're always really grateful for those that do share their experiences. And um, it really does obviously help to kind of shape our understanding of, you know, I say on this matter, why people choose to have medical tattooing. And as I say, the, the, the huge impact that that can have. So I think that's um, an important point, because this is these are areas of people's lives that they don't freely talk about and it's actually hard for them to seek help. So um, it's often difficult to share their stories. It's often difficult to get them to participate in research because the people that come to me, they're coming to me because they don't want somebody to know about. They either don't want to see it themselves or they don't want other people to see what it is, whatever it is that they are, their visible difference. Um and I think it's important that all of these treatments being offered, any treatments being offered to the public, have medical research to back them up. And it enables patients to feel safer 
and for us as practitioners to find out what really works and what aspects are important to patients so that we can continue to improve services for them. Um, medical tattooing, like Amy said and Nicola said, it's not just there to help increase a person's confidence and it's not a cosmetic change. It really is a psychological impact. So having the research to back it up, it brings it into the medical field and hopefully makes that referral process smoother and the ease of finding a competent um, practitioner a much smoother process as well. Really great stuff. It sounded it, the, really great stuff. It definitely sounds like this research was much needed and it's also really great to hear about how engaged the alopecia and hair loss communities were as well in this work. So Nicola, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about specifically what you did in the research and also what you found, because that's a really interesting bit. Of course, yeah, that's the key thing, isn't it? So we um, carried out individual telephone interviews with 25 women who were aged between 26 and 67 years. Um, who all had experience of medical tattooing related to hair loss in the past five years. Um, as Ray mentioned, all participants had chosen to have their eyebrows and or their eyeliner tattooed. Um, and each interview lasted around an hour with each participant. We then transcribed all of those interviews and we looked for common themes. And um, within that, we really highlighted four key findings. So. I'll, I'll run through the four key findings, but I'd love for Amy and Ray to jump in um, if they want to add to this as I go. So the first finding really was around um, women's motivations for undergoing medical tattooing. So participants reported that the traditional medical treatments that they had tried had either failed um, or had provided temporary results or um, had produced quite a range of upsetting and unpleasant side effects um, that they then decided they, they couldn't continue with those treatments. Um, participants then described feeling abandoned by medical professionals once those traditional treatment options had been exhausted. And as Amy fantastically described, um, although many participants felt they had adjusted to losing the hair from their head over time, they'd found the loss of their eyebrows and eyelashes to be particularly distressing. And so participants' primary reasons for choosing medical tattooing included appearance-related concerns and a loss of self-confidence, um, a loss of identity, um, you know, that feeling of, of looking in the mirror and not recognising themselves, um, and also a lack of femininity, you know, kind of losing your eyebrows and eyelashes. Um, lots of people described how that had kind of taken away their sense of femininity as well. Um, and also, as Amy mentioned, participants discussed the, the time and effort that's involved in applying makeup every day. Um, and also the ongoing worry that this makeup might be smudged or removed throughout the day. So that kind of fear that um, their alopecia would somehow be revealed. Nicola mentioned that patients felt that they had been left behind by medical practitioners and they tried lots of treatments and nothing had worked. Um, and I think that's quite an important point about medical tattooing is it, it is a last resort, but it's a good last resort. I would always say to somebody, if there is a treatment that can improve um, their visible difference for because it's a lifelong improvement. So whether that is getting a better texture of a scar or whether that is allowing some of the hair to grow back, that gives them a long lasting 
treatments, whereas medical tattooing definitely is the last resort once they've tried everything else. Everything has maybe worked to the as best as it can or has failed in its treatment. And then and then you come to medical tattooing. So it is always the last resort, but now it is a good last resort for a lot of people. Um, and I can very much relate to um, what you were saying about people feeling that, that you know, they'd kind of been well, kind of, yeah, left left by doctors, really. I mean, I, I got to a point where because my hair loss was so sudden, you know, lots of the treatment options that that were available, they weren't available, made available to me because, you know, my hair loss had progressed so quickly that it kind of got beyond the point of um, them, them exploring any of these treatment options. And you kind of do feel absolutely, as I say, dejected, rejected, feeling like you're on your own with it. Um, and and I say, the, I think the frustrating thing for me looking back was that there was no guidance given to me um, with regards to either wigs or makeup of any kind. Um, and it was only a chance conversation with, say, a friend about her grandmother who actually got me thinking around things like, um, you know, medical tattooing. It, it, unless it's something that you were kind of engaged with generally, it's not something that that I knew anything about. So I think it was frustrating not to have the signposting. I think the signposting would have been really helpful early on um, and maybe wouldn't have felt that my um, it was such a big step when I had it eventually. I say I think it was around 12 to 18 months later. Um, but as I say, that, that's my own journey. That's my own experience with it. But I, I think I would have preferred to have engaged with it sooner. And I think that's a lot of people's journeys. And I find that from everybody that comes to me. And I think that is just because it is an infant industry um, and it is about getting awareness out there. So about five or six years ago, I started just doing WI talks because you've got 30 to 50 women in a room um, and they're all going to talk to family members and friends. So I was doing about 10 to 12 a year just to get the word about medical tattooing and camouflage cream out there because people didn't know how to find anyone. Then I was doing talks in doctor's surgeries. And and it's why this is so imperative. And the research that everybody's done is so imperative because slowly, 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 medical tattooing is becoming more known about. And then people can put referral systems in place so patients can find a way to some to some kind of solution for themselves much easier yeah and I think I don't know if you agree with me Ray but I I feel that I've noticed in the past decade that the, the last basically in the last five years versus the first five years I had alopecia I think there is much more awareness around um, the various treatment options that are out there with regards to medical tattooing I think that does I say whether it's now I'm just more aware so I'm maybe looking for it more but I do feel that I see more about it um I say I've seen like articles in magazines and I've seen various things which previously I hadn't I definitely agree with you there Amy I think you're right I think the last five to six years is when it's really come on and most of that's come about people wanting brows and brows being big in fashion so people are getting semi-permanent makeup just just for cosmetic reasons but that then leads them into knowing oh you can do this and you can have this done and we can treat this um condition and then again they talk to other people and so yeah it's definitely becoming more renowned at the moment and more and needs to be more so yeah and I think you you've touched upon something as well I think the, the there's a there's a greater degree of awareness around wig wearing and I think part of that has come from it being more commonplace in popular culture and celebrities wearing wigs 
And I think the fact that I think medical tattooing has had like, you know, again, the people that are doing it more for, you know, a bit more of the glam reasons is how I put it, you know, people that are just essentially wanting to improve their features uh, rather than maybe features that they've lost. Um, I do think that actually helps, like you say, um, get the awareness out there for the, the you know, the procedures as a whole, uh, which can only be a good thing. Yes, definitely. I would agree. And everything you're saying, you know, was really echoed in the research we did. So our second kind of key finding was around the experiences of medical tattooing. Um, and so most participants, as you were saying, had found out about medical tattooing uh, through a, a random recommendation, you know, from bumping into somebody um, or just from seeing a post on an Internet forum. And then they went on to do their own research and, and kind of find out a bit more about it. Um, also, we, we found that prior to undergoing the actual process, um, participants did have concerns. So, you know, anxiety around needles, you know, worries about what pain would be involved and whether the outcome would look natural. You know, one participant I remember saying, I don't want to be left with something that's worse than having nothing, which I felt was really powerful. Um, and so it was just so important that participants received a full consultation, they didn't feel rushed or pressured. Lots of um, people were taking photographs of themselves to show the practitioner what they'd look like before they had alopecia. Um, and really just taking that time to feel reassured about the process, what was involved, the aftercare involved, um, and really being happy with the, the colour and the shape um, that they were looking for. And what was really interesting was that although our participants had sought treatment at a range of different venues, and Ray mentioned a few at the beginning, um, so this included high street beauty salons, high street tattoo studios, um, all the way through to kind of specialist private clinics. Um, although all of those require, you know, a different level of specialism, different professional qualifications, different referral processes. Actually, what we found was that the key factor in making sure participants had a really good experience was having trust in their practitioner and really feeling, you know, like we say in the paper, that they were putting their face in somebody else's hands and that those hands were trustworthy hands. Um, and thankfully, we did find that most participants on the whole were satisfied with the outcome that they'd achieved and that they would recommend medical tattooing to others. Absolutely. I can I can relate to the 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 worry and the fear of getting it wrong. Um, and um, for me, it was and, and I think we include this kind of on our website in terms of our kind of like, you know, top tips. And, and, and I say I did. I really did my research. I was very much focused on uh, the technician's previous work and looking at their portfolio. Uh, but then also it was, you know, having that initial consultation where, again, you know, it was having them drawn on in in pencil and seeing the the style and the shape that, that those brows were going to be and being able to be comfortable and confident in the person that, like you say, you're putting your face in their hands. It really is a big step and it feels like a big step. Um, and, and I say, I, looking back as well for me, it was that moment of when they were on and um, initially it's knowing things like, again, I don't think I'd really been prepared for how much darker they were for the first few days. And that that feeling of, oh, gosh, what have I done? These are awful. They're too dark. They're not They're never going to fit my face. And then obviously, again, once that once everything had settled down and healed properly, you know, I was I was thrilled and delighted with them. Um, 
And I also want to point out, again, for me, I think um, what was so fantastic for, for myself is prior to having alopecia, um, I wasn't particularly great with my eyebrows. I think I was a bit of an overplucker and I, don't, I never particularly liked my, my shape. So to have a basically professional brows put on by somebody that that is their bread and butter, that's what they do for a living. My brows are so much better than than anything I had before. So it, it was actually, again, it was one of those where I looked back and I was like, actually, this is a really positive thing. Whereas, you know, it, it was a big, scary step, though. I, I always want to make that clear. It wasn't something that I went into, um, you know, with any great ease. There was a lot of trepidation. Um, but as I say, it, it, that was kind of, I think, eased by, you know, doing your research. I didn't rush into anything and I certainly didn't feel pressured. Um, and, and I say, I think the biggest advice that we would have is if you're somewhere and you're feeling pressured into something, you know, listen to your gut and, and kind of take some time to think about, um, you know, who it is that you're having those procedures with. But yeah, it was a big step, but one that looking back, I'm very glad that I took. And I think I think when you see a practitioner, if you don't feel a connection with them, it doesn't you, you've got the choice always to go to somebody else. And it doesn't mean there's a good or a bad practitioner. It's just that you need to connect with them. You need to trust them and you need to really uh, know that they're listening to your expectations and what you want and how you want to look. And then you're able to take their advice as well. And I think you always need to say to somebody you know you do your research go go and see three practitioners if you need to and then find out who you feel more comfortable with because the more comfortable you feel the better outcome you're going to get for sure absolutely because it, like you say it's a it's a very personal experience that somebody's having it's it's a very kind of as I say you know it you have to get it right so there has to be that trust there so, yeah, you have to have that kind of, um, you know, connection to somebody and know that, as I say, you you have faith that they're doing the best for you. Um, and, and I certainly got that from my from my practitioner, from my technician. I was very, you know, instantly put at ease from from kind of day one. And, you know, I think she saw my worry. You know, I, I was very honest with her and said, you know, I'm, I'm really worried that I'm going to regret what happens. And, you know, I think her response to that was, I won't be happy until you're happy. So it's that, you know, it's having that kind of relationship with somebody that I think that's that's really what you need. Definitely. That's lovely to hear that you had such a great experience with a practitioner as well. It's really nice. Yeah. And again, I don't think I really need to say much more because I think you've just summarised it so beautifully. Um, but our third key finding was really around um, advice for others who are considering this as an option. Um, and really, the main kind of takeaway was um, that participants really advised other people to do their research. Don't take medical tattooing lightly, you know, go into it confident um, and make sure you do find that practitioner that you really connect with. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, and I think the thing I'd hammer home is um, to take your time. So all those things that you've just mentioned takes a little bit of time to find the right uh, company, the right person, however it is going to be that you're going to get that done. Um, and I think the worst thing you could do is just rush into it, basically decide on one day, right, I want to have this done. And then by the next day, you've gone and found somebody and you've got it sorted. I think take your time, do the research. I think it is really important in the knowledge that, as I say, as we've, we've touched upon in, in our chats, you know, it is an unregulated industry. So, there, you know, there are people that are doing it 
and set themselves up that don't have the the same level of experience in the training and the you know so that's why it's just so important to be checking out previous work and looking at how long they've been doing what they're doing and where their training comes from how they've been trained you know it's so important um so I would very much say don't rush the other part of don't rush is you know People take a long time to find a practitioner. And then when they do, and when they've made that decision to go ahead, then they want that process to happen quickly. Um, And maybe don't realise that you are going to need two, sometimes three treatments. You do need to leave time in between those treatments for the healing process, for the colour to really come through, to see what is needed doing next. Um, and I always tend to leave a little bit longer than necessary because for some people with different conditions, they may, may need that extra time. Um, and so patients quite often are ready to go and want to come in straight away. But actually, depending on whether they're going on holiday because they can't swim, start going in the sunshine, jacuzzi, sauna for at least 10 days after a treatment, there's still that waiting time. There's still that um you may need to wait for an appointment. You then need to have your healing time. You'll then need to have your top up. You'll then need to have your second healing time. Um, so there's an awareness of that that I think we need to. It would be nice if doctors or nurses, if they understood that kind of process as well, so that when they said to somebody, why don't you look into medical tattooing? But it's a process and it's not like going in, getting a normal body tattoo. You go in hour two hours you're done end of story you know there is that time factor as well even when you've made your decision I think as well um sort of pulling in now on our kind of fourth and final finding you know just to pick up on a lot of what you were saying um this theme kind of focused around ongoing concerns that people had about the industry more generally um, and so this idea that medical tattooing not only is a process that takes a, a long time, but also, as you mentioned earlier, Ray, might require regular top ups to stop the tattoo from fading or losing colour over time. And so the costs of the upkeep were also a concern for participants. Um, Ray, did you want to add to that? Yeah, so the ongoing cost of the maintenance, which, again, as a practitioner, you need to be letting the patients know that the conditions that fade the pigment, such as UV rays and vitamin A and retinol, and how they can control these aspects in order for the pigment to last longer. And and also, as well as what we can do as practitioners to enable that process. So if I find that somebody is coming back to me more often than I would prefer, in terms of, you know, somebody doesn't want to be coming back and having their eyebrows or their nipple areola topped up all the time. So if I find that they're coming back a little bit too often, then I can suggest areas in which we can maybe go a bit darker, just a shade or two darker, because the darker t- colours tend to last a bit longer. Um, but the practitioner also needs to be feeding every time they see that patient in all of their aftercare forms, in every review that they have with them, reminding them that the sun will fade their pigment, UV rays fade the pigment, um, any products with vitamin A or retinol in will f- help fade the pigment quicker than normal. So there's little tips that the patient can do to help keep their brows or their scar or whatever it is that they've had treated, how they can help keep that pigment retained for as long as it can. 
I also wanted to mention something um, on, on the cost front, um, which obviously is to say that, um, you know, the, the cost of treatments for some people isn't something that is is accessible. And it's, it's I say, worth pointing that out. And I think for me, um, my initial treatment, I was really, really lucky in that at the time um, of losing my hair, I was working in an office um, and with conversations in the office around me going for this treatment. And basically, I was overwhelmed to find that they'd all chipped together and essentially had paid for my my first treatment, which was absolutely lovely. And I was totally blown away and it wasn't what I was expecting. But that that allowed me that following year to have a holiday because pre basically my holiday fund was going to be spent on having these treatments. And so it is that thing of, you know, not everybody has the same levels of disposable income. And it's that kind of knowledge that they, you know, that these treatments um, aren't free and they're not off, we'll say they're not available on the NHS. You know, again, I, I think one time in the past I had heard rumours in Scotland that um, they were actually allowing in some areas medical tattooing for alopecia. I don't know whether that's still the case. That was some time ago and I don't think I've heard anything since. But for me, you know, it's the the, the fact that, um, you know, within the NHS, wigs are often available, not always. That's also a bit of a postcode lottery. But for me, um, if there was some, um, you know, some financial help made available, for me, that would have been spent, I, I would have spent that on my medical tattooing rather than wigs, because it hasn't been wigs that have been transformational as part of my alopecia journey. It was the medical tattooing. So, yeah, it's it's a shame that at the moment there is not financial support made available for what, as I say, I've established to be um, a treatment that very much should be considered for a medical need rather than, I say, it being kind of sometimes, I feel, clubbed together into a bit of a, oh, it's just a cosmetic thing. It's just a makeup treatment. It's so much more than that. Um, and it's a shame, as I say, that there's not that support available. We absolutely found that in the research as well. So we had pretty much all of our participants saying that there's a huge difference between having this treatment to restore appearance, restore what they've lost because of a medical condition um, and, you know, kind of trying to enhance cosmetically what, what you have and that, you know, kind of having some treatment because of a medical condition should be distinguished completely from the beauty industry and should be recognised as a medical need. And I think that's kind of what you're picking up on, Amy. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I also just want to throw in, so for myself, obviously, I had that first treatment 11 years ago. Um, and obviously, in that time, my brows have faded and I've had um, a, a couple of top ups. Um, I think I've probably had about three during that time. But I haven't had any um, top ups now for a number of years. But what my uh, medical tattooing has allowed me is those lines on my face, which now I do have the confidence to be using some makeup over them. So I found that to be really helpful for me. Um, and again, cost is prohibitive for me in order to be able to continue with the with the top up treatments. So it's that I think it's just that knowledge and that appreciation that for some of us, it isn't something that is routinely something that we can afford to factor into our monthly budgeting. It's it's one of those things we have to kind of make choices. Um, so that's a choice that I've made, but I want to throw that into the mix that I'm so grateful for these lines that I have on my face, although be it at the moment, they're rather faded, but they provide me with this professional template that previously I didn't have to, um, you know, essentially enhance them myself with some clever makeup. 
Definitely. And just a couple more points really to pick up on. So Ray mentioned earlier about um, health professionals being made more aware of what medical tattooing can offer and, and the process that's involved. A lot of our participants also felt that you know, health professionals such as general practitioners, GPs, maybe dermatologists could be better informed about medical tattooing as a potential treatment option. So, you know, OK, we might have exhausted all of these medical options that are available to you, but then not leaving the person with this feeling of abandonment, but saying there are alternatives, there are uh, coping mechanisms, there are things that might be able to help you. Um, and this is how you go about it. So really kind of giving health professionals that, that extra awareness and being able to signpost people to um, medical tattooing as a potential option, I think is something that the participants really strongly felt um, should be happening. Um, and equally, um, that feeling of, um, you know, this isn't just a, a cosmetic thing. This isn't just about how I look. This is a real emotional, psychological impact. I think a lot of participants felt that Although alopecia is not a life-threatening condition, it's certainly a life-changing one. And actually, the emotional impact of hair loss is currently undervalued. And I think that's kind of what we're saying, isn't it? That it's that people need to be aware of this and, you know, the NHS needs to be aware of this and people need to be properly supported in this journey. Absolutely. Um, and I think I completely I can appreciate where doctors come from. They, we present ourselves as a patient with hair loss and we're presenting very much with a physical problem. And the doctor, the dermatologist or the GP, whoever it might be, they're looking to fix that physical problem, the physical hair loss that has occurred. And, and, and it's, I say it's too true that, that so often um, it is the psychological impact that is actually the bit that's the hardest thing for the person with hair loss to be dealing with. And it's that that needs to be looked at. And back to what you were saying around, you know, if, if we could just have some more awareness within the medical community for kind of like the signposting. I think, you know, sometimes um, doctors might get kind of, uh, you know, feel like a little bit conflicted or tied up in terms of maybe feeling that they need to signpost to maybe particular practitioners or things like that. For me, looking back, if I'd have just had somebody tell me that it was an option, that it was a thing, like that it even existed, I think that would have been absolutely, you know, kind of groundbreaking for me. I didn't know it was a thing. So even for just a, a doctor to have said, OK, we've exhausted kind of treatment options, but there are things like wigs and there is something called medical tattooing. Even if they hadn't told me where to go, it would have planted a seed for me to investigate more. But because it was never mentioned, I didn't know. But what's interesting is that I think they don't know either. I mm. think that they don't know it's an option. Um, so it takes practitioners to put themselves out there by informing the doctors, informing the GPs, informing the nurses, informing all of those people. And that takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of getting in the door to actually speak to the GP practice in the first place. You know, and you can't cover the whole of the UK. So I'm noticing now uh, I'm definitely getting more referrals from doctors who will either refer straight to me or will tell, will say to somebody, oh, you can have medical tattooing. I don't know who you can go to, but, at least, but I know about medical tattooing. But I really think, especially when you were looking, Amy, I don't think they knew about it at all. They? And even now, even though we all know about it and a lot of and it is much more in the forefront of people's minds. 
unless you need it, people still don't really pick up on it. So they might not read the article in the newspaper because it doesn't link to them at the moment. Um, so it really is down to practitioners like me and people like Nicola and yourself doing the research and putting podcasts out and putting information out there that slowly, 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 more and more practitioners will know about, doctors, consultants will know about it and will be able to advise people about that. And perhaps improving that method of signposting will also help in terms of regulating the industry. If people know reliable, trained practitioners that they can refer to, maybe that will help um, in that process as well. So we know kind of just to pick up on a final point from our research that, you know, a lot of people felt that, you know, they they could ex have experienced a much worse outcome had they not done their research. You know, everybody knew somebody who had had that, you know, awful experience, you know, and just horror stories of people finding something on Groupon and, you know, and, and going into a studio um, and, and, and just not having the outcome that they wanted and, and then feeling, you know, oh, gosh, now I've got to live with this or I've got to try and get this fixed. Um, and people really feeling that they could be taken advantage of because they felt so desperate, because they were looking for an answer. Um, you know, people feeling that there were practitioners out there that, you know, maybe they'd done a training course overnight, you know, um, or over a weekend and learned how to do this, you know, really quickly. And they got a certificate, but that actually, you know, maybe that wasn't quite the level of training and experience that you're talking about and that, that the participants wanted to see. So to stop people experiencing a bad outcome or being taken advantage of in this way, it really needs to be properly regulated. There needs to be some level of standardised training. There needs to be some kind of level of audit or professional ongoing training that, that can be implemented to make sure that there are reliable practitioners out there and so that people can get in touch with those reliable practitioners when they want to. It's interesting because what a, a lot of people will say after a treatment or even after a consultation, and I've referred them somewhere else because maybe medical tattooing is not the best thing for them. They'll say, thank you for not being one of those clinics that just takes my money and, and does the job. I think it's really sad that people will have to thank a clinic or a private hospital for not just taking their money and doing something, but actually putting them first and saying, actually, this isn't right for you right now. You could go and have this. This would be a better treatment for you. And I think the whether it's um, what they have actually experienced or what they think is an experience of this industry is that people don't really care and people just want to earn money from it. And what we need to put across is that a lot of practitioners really do care. They do put the patients first. But like you say, there needs to be that regulatory body so that you can distinguish between practitioners or clinics or private hospitals um, and who is who you can go to and who's trustworthy, because that comes back to the first point of how somebody chooses a practitioner is through trust. They need to trust that practitioner. And I think that's in every area of any kind of treatment that you have. You want to feel trust in your practitioner. Yeah, I think I just wanted to add that um, that something that you said, Nicola, resonated with me, which which is that 
at the point of somebody losing their hair, there, there is a vulnerability. There is like you don't basically feel or you often don't feel yourself. You know, you do feel that that you uh, basically I, I look back and I think, actually, if I um, had had the if I'd had my medical tattooing, maybe kind of like, you know, a month or two after I'd lost my hair, I was really in a, in a really, you know, kind of I'll be honest, desperate place at that point. And maybe for me, had I, you know, kind of, you know, reached the wrong person or or not explored things in kind of more of a, you know, research minded way and done my research and found out more, potentially I could have been somebody that fell for some of the, the pitfalls that, that we hear that people do. So I think it is that thing of, you know, it, it's reiterating that that it is so important to take your time, don't rush into anything. And, and as I say, do that research, which, as you've established, Nicola, that can feel quite challenging and daunting if you are in a position of feeling a little bit more vulnerable than you ordinarily would. That's really, really great stuff. Thank you so much, everybody, for sharing. Thank you, Nicola, for sharing the research side of things and Amy and Ray for sharing kind of your own perspectives on the topic, too. So I wonder then, in light of these findings and in light of the discussion that you've all just had, what's next? So in terms of the research, um, we've managed to publish this study in a leading journal, which is aimed at health professionals. Um, It's quite a popular journal for health professionals working in this particular area. It's the Journal of Psychology, Health and Medicine. And that article is available now and it's open access. So anyone can access that article. Um, We'll also be presenting this research at future national and international conferences, including, of course, the upcoming Appearance Matters 9 online conference. Um, And we hope that this kind of collective dissemination will help to raise awareness of medical tattooing and its risks and benefits among health professionals, as we've been discussing. Um, But we've also um, engaged in other methods of dissemination. So Alopecia UK have been kind enough to feature um, our research on their blog. Um, And of course, we're participating in podcasts and um, in other media appearances as well. And we hope that these efforts will help individuals who have experienced hair loss to have a better idea of what's involved um, to help them make an informed decision about whether medical tattooing is for them. For me, that sums it up. I mean, I would love to keep doing research regarding medical tattooing. Um, I think there's a whole wealth of information out there that we need to get across. I think Nicola summed that up perfectly. I think, you know, I mean, from, from Alopecia UK's point of view, what we will do is we will continue to include information about medical tattooing in our resources on our website. And if we can, we'll try and include that in the conversations that we have with medical professionals, to, like we're saying, to try and get the awareness there so that that signposting comes from, from them. So individuals who are affected by alopecia know of its existence. Great stuff. Well, thank you all so much for giving up your time today to be with us on the podcast. It was really, really wonderful to speak to you. And I've loved having kind of all your different perspectives included today. Thank you. Thank you, Bruna. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. So, Nadia, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. As I said earlier, it's a completely new topic to me, so it was so insightful to hear the various perspectives. Yeah, I agree. And I think it really enriched the episode to have those three different perspectives as well on the matter. Yeah, for sure. Well, for anybody listening who might want to know more about medical tattooing, we've got a bunch of links uh, in the show notes, so be sure to check them out.
And on that note, I think that's all we have time for for today. Sadly, yes. Well, as always, thank you for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and it gives us a little boost. It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in our show notes. Until next time. Bye. Bye.